Good morning again. This morning we will be turning to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, we'll be reading verses 18 to 22 in a few minutes. This is week two on the doctrine of baptism. Let's pray. So, Father, help me. Oh, what precious word, Father. Help me teach. Help me unfold the meaning of our baptisms. Help me represent Scripture accurately. Help us see the wonder and the beauty of this drama. To the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. What we saw last week was that baptism is a drama of the most significant and central reality in the universe. It is a drama of the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead, actually saving persons who are being baptized, who say to that Gospel, yes, I die with Him. Yes, He is risen for me and He has brought me to new life through new birth and one day will raise me from the dead to immortality. I'm saved. That's not insignificant. The word baptism it just comes straight over in a transliteration, really, from the Greek as opposed to a translation. It comes from the Greek word baptizo, to baptize, and to baptism. But if we were to translate it, we would translate it something like this, immerse, or to dip, or to submerge. And if it's in water, then you submerge into water. John the Baptist could, could be called, and it would be a good translation, John the Immerser. And as so often happens throughout church history, and why we're, Paul constantly warns us, every precious doctrine is susceptible to being distorted and being turned into that which is false and dangerous. So what I mean is this, there are some groups that hold that water baptism is a work that the repentant sinner must do before they are forgiven of their sins. This perverts the gospel and it misunderstands the meaning of baptism. The activity of water baptism does not save, I'm going to be careful, I'm going to define this now, in the sense of the waters of baptism do not cause new birth or saving faith, which new birth produces. The waters are not the lever that is pulled that cause that miracle of coming from death to life in the individual person. Many of us in here were raised as Roman Catholics. Some of us. And the Roman Catholic Church teaches that baptism is necessary for salvation because the very act of baptism itself, that is, that sacrament, causes new birth. Causes regeneration. It makes you a Christian. In other words, they teach... Baptism is the lever. It's the means by which saving grace is given to the person. Let me quote 
from the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, which is their official doctrine on this issue. Quote, Born with a fallen human nature and tainted by original sin, children also have need of the new birth in baptism to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God to which all men are called. The sheer gratuitousness of the grace of salvation is particularly manifest in infant baptism. The church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth. Period. Absolutely. This is what I've known people in my circle of life, even in my circle of family, even though the parents are not practicing Catholics, anymore, but when the grandchild is born, you go up there, you talk to the priest, and you better make sure you get their child through the waters of baptism. For good reason, if this is true. Okay, so here is this morning's, the second week on baptism. It is to say this. Baptism is the outflow of saving faith. It is not the cause of saving faith. And so to try to unpack this, I want us to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And in this paragraph, I want us to see, here's Peter laying out the centrality of the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ and His resurrection in order to save, to deliver persons from eternal wrath, from destruction. And that in the midst of it, water baptism He presents to us as that which represents that saving reality. Let me first read verses 18 to 22 of 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So, the very beginning in verse 18, listen again for the essence of the gospel of salvation. It's right there. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that He might bring us to God. How did He do it? By being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So the implication there of verse 18 is clear. Every single one of us persons born into this world have a massive problem. We are cut off from God. We are alienated from God. Notice the goal in verse 18 of Jesus' suffering. What was the purpose of it in this text? That 
he might bring us to God. So therefore, the obvious implication is we're alienated from him in some important sense that we need to be brought back to him. And notice in the text what it is that alienates us from God. Sin. He says, Christ suffered for our sins that He might bring us to God. So our sin has caused God's just wrath to hang over us. And essentially, since the garden, like our father Adam, he was hiding, exposed, alienated from God. And so have all of us been. And God needs to solve the problem to bring anybody back to Himself. And the way He solves the problem is not by Himself becoming a sinner. God would be sinful if He just swept sin under the rug. He would be saying, my glory, my holiness is not that important and that is sinful. And that's where the Gospel, the good news comes in. That God has acted in such a way to overcome this alienation. His appropriate alienation from us. And He did it by offering Christ in His suffering to die in our behalf as the punishment for sins. And so any person who dies apart from coming to God through Christ to be brought back to Him, if they die without becoming connected to Christ, the righteous one, then they die alone with their own unrighteousness to present on the day of judgment. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that the eternal Son of God became a human being in order to bear our punishment that our sins deserve, in order to clean the slate of guilt that was against us. The Apostle Paul summarizes all that simply this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We implore you, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made Him, Christ, to be sin, the one who knew no sin in His humanity at all. Perfectly sinless sacrifice. He made Him to be sin, the sin offering, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's why it's called the Gospel, the good news. The good news is this. Come. Come with what? The only thing we are allowed to bring in coming is our alienation and sin. And that's it. And then He offers His eternal Son on our behalf. And thus, Jesus is our only boast forever. That's verse 18. For Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that He might bring us to God. And then notice, He's not done. He says how all this happened. And He says He died. But after He died, He was raised. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. By that, he doesn't mean some woohoo spiritual as opposed to non-physical. He means what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Yes, that physical body is not mortal anymore. It is raised spiritual. It is a resurrected 
immortality forever that Christ was raised with, overcoming death. And that resurrection is proof that His offering on the cross was received. The sinless man bore the iniquity of many. He accomplished propitiation. The wrath of God satisfied against actual sinners by the sin substitute sacrifice. And thus death couldn't hold him and he was raised from the dead. And then Peter's going to go and he flashes back to Genesis and he's going to see an analogy with the historical event of the flood and of Noah's ark. Those being saved on the ark, that's like us who are in Christ, who is our human representative being saved. But for a moment, he's going to do that, but jump down to verses 21 to 22. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So when Jesus died and then conquered death through His resurrection, it says all the demonic powers of the universe were now subjected to Him in a distinct way. Because from creation... Everything was always subjected to the Holy Trinity. What he means here is that the second person of the Trinity who became a human being and in His resurrection as King, all demonic powers have been subjected to Him. But what's more than that, and what that really means at its core, is that in His death, Jesus the man obliterated the one thing that demonic powers could use to destroy us. Our judicial guilt before God. He nailed it to the cross. He took it out of the way. He has made us before God not guilty. And not only that, but by His substitutionary living in humanity, perfectly righteous. Now, one more, just to see why Peter puts it there about demonic powers. Why is that significant? Oh, it's significant. Paul does the same. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 26, Paul writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, because they will one day rise from the dead also. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in its own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at Jesus' second coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom of God excuse me, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For Jesus must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So His death, His resurrection subjected all the enemies of God, and thus of God's people, to Christ. Which means you cannot be destroyed if you belong to Christ, ever. Jesus will not let His work of salvation be in vain. 
any more than he would have let those eight persons on the ark perish in the flood. So now, in this paragraph in 1 Peter 3, this is why I brought that up. I want to make sure you see what he's saying, the gospel. In the very middle of this paragraph on the centrality of the cross, his death, his resurrection to save persons, Peter inserts baptism. He makes the statement in verse 21. Baptism now saves you. So now here's my question for the rest of the sermon. How are we to understand that statement? I'm going to come out with the same conclusion on all three ways to understand it. First is for what it is, and this is going to be my argument. It's an analogy. We'll get there. Secondly, you understand that like anything else ultimately, as you say, does he mean this? Let's put that up as if he means uh, baptism causes regeneration. Okay? You're not done yet. Now you go to the whole counsel of God in the Scripture and say, does that stand? That's the second way we understand it. And then the third way is just in this immediate context of this one paragraph itself. So first, an analogy. By this ring, honey, you got a ring on your hand? Put it up. Okay. By these rings, we are wed. What does that mean? Baptism now saves you. These rings wed us. Do I mean, or do any of us in our culture who use rings for that, do we mean that like the Lord of the Rings, this ring has some kind of innate power in and of itself that as soon as it goes on my finger or anyone else's finger, it will produce a union of covenant marriage with somebody? We all know that. No, of course not. It's not what we mean. Well, what produces that covenant, that union of holy matrimony. It is my and her heart and will to make an oath until death do us part. All these promises. That's what creates the union in front of witnesses. Not the ring. The ring is there as a symbol of what our will produced. It's a symbol of the union that we have before God. And thus it is appropriate, because we're not silly people, we understand how language is used, to say, by this ring, I thee wed. So you see my ring? You see my wife's ring? These rings mean we are married. And that's not insignificant. We're married. Thank God we still, I hope we still have a culture that says, there's a ring in that guy's, that means he's married. It's a good thing. But if I take this ring off and put it on my daughter, or on Nathan, It doesn't mean they're married. You can put a ring on your finger and not necessarily be married. You can put a ring on your ring finger on the left hand in the Western culture, and it doesn't mean you're necessarily married. But that doesn't prevent us from saying, I'm married! You can go under the waters of baptism as an unsaved person, and it doesn't save you, and it doesn't mean you're saved. But you saved people who go under the waters of baptism. How precious! But baptism saves me. The ring marries me. It's 
true. Because it represents the will, the union with Christ. That's what he means, baptism now saves you. Well, so, but the second way is look at all of Scripture and how shall we therefore understand it. So we'll go that way now. Just for a moment, as we open up the entirety of the New Testament, it's so clear that we are saved, justified, forgiven of sins. Okay, We're saved by faith. So in Acts 16, verse 31, what must I do? Answer, believe. It's the verb form of faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. Ephesians 2.8-9 For by grace you have been saved. How? Through Faith. And this, faith in grace, is not of your own doing. Itself is a gift of God. It's not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Galatians 3.26, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. How? Through faith. Okay. But the New Testament also clearly teaches that that would, faith that does saved is not merely a mental assent or agreement to particular historical gospel preaching facts. But that faith at its core is an act of the heart that embraces Jesus, embraces the truth of the gospel as it's tr the treasure that it is. So listen to Paul in Romans 10, verses 9 to 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's true. But the confession that he's talking about here is not like a parrot. Polly want a cracker? Said it. Jesus saves. You can get a parrot to say that. Or, or we can have pastors and evangelists or a friend or down at the pier say, pray this prayer after me. Not knowing where you really are in your heart and what's happening or for what motivation or reason. Maybe it's just to get rid of the person. And you can say, Jesus, come into my heart. I confess you as Lord. You can say all those words. Does Paul mean that if you do that, whether you like it or not, you're saved? Of course not. He's not talking about parroting words. He's talking about that reality that springs from the heart. That's why he says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. His point is confession there, with physical, with the mouth, is the overflow of faith that's there in the heart. So when Paul insists on confession, he means in saving faith, the heart must be so full, because with Paul, that's because new birth produced this now. Now your heart's changed. Now faith is there, and it's so full that if it's really there, something's going to come out of your 
mouth about the truth of Jesus. It must overflow in confession. That's what he's saying. See, that's why Jesus could, could say, if you confess me before men, then I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Sounds like works righteousness. Works righteousness, doesn't it? Really? Got to produce the work of confessing him before men? Of course not. The reason Jesus can say that, and he is the gospel, and he preaches the gospel, is not because you're confessing him before men is what causes salvation in you or for you. No, it's because He knows if you're saved, that's what will come to show the evidence of it. And there's a huge distinction there. So, confession or water. The expression of genuine faith is what the New Testament calls for when it tells us to express it by passing dramatically from death to life in the waters of baptism. I willingly tell you all, I've died with Christ. And He was raised for my justification, and so I will be raised up with Him, saying, yes, I have new life in Him. And that's why Jesus' final words to His disciples before His ascension to heaven go like this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all, including baptism, that I have commanded you. Now, because, look, this is a short series on baptism, I, I'm going to ask you, even though you may know these, just to tell your mind, be attentive, let things sink in, because I'm going to read a number of short passages from the book of Acts. And I want you to notice, in the first few decades of the church, those closest with Jesus and what they did and what they passed down, how closely tied together are saving faith and baptism. First, in chapter 2, verse 38, the Apostle Peter concludes his very first sermon when they say, okay, what must we do? His fellow Jews say to him, and here's his response. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, Peter wasn't saying that baptism or the water is what causes forgiveness of sins. Now, one reason I'll say that, the very next chapter of Acts, he preaches again, and he concludes it this way. This is what you do. Repent. Well, that, that, that seems to be one of those things that is an absolute mind. Repent, therefore, and turn again, so that your sins may be blotted out. He didn't mention baptism there. But, in the New Testament and in the history book of the New Testament by Dr. Luke called the book of Acts, it is clear that in the apostles' minds of the gospel and the preaching and then what is to happen, it is absolutely clear that there's an extremely close connection between coming to faith and baptism. So much so that the idea that there is an unbaptized Christian running around for months and months and months and years. Oh, no, I never, yeah, but I'm a Christian, belong to the church in Corinth. You've been baptized? No. There's no 
It doesn't exist in the New Testament any more than the idea of people who are not members of the body of Christ in Corinth go around saying, I'm a Christian. It's not there. Faith in Christ brings forgiveness of sin. Baptism is the outward act that demonstrates that inward reality that has happened to you by God's grace. So now, notice then as I read the order and the way Luke puts this again and again. Faith comes first, then they're baptized. In Acts 2.41 we read, And so those who received the Word, okay, just real quickly, Okay, he means believed in Jesus. Can you define that term? Receive the word as, yeah, but I don't believe in the cross or the preaching? Of course not. It's his way of saying those who received the word, who believed in the gospel, were baptized. And they're added that day 3,000 souls, 3,000 baptisms. In Acts 8, verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, okay, when they believed it, they were baptized, both men and women. In Acts 36 to 38. And as they were going along the road, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, he's going back to Africa, okay? He's like a really top-notch dude in the government and all kinds of funds, and he's not staying around here to be in the, the church. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, oh, you think, why would the eunuch say this? Unless, remember, Philip ran into him, or God brought him over there, an Ethiopian eunuch, very interested in the Hebrew Scripture and the Jewish religion, is reading Isaiah 53. Who's this about? Philip says, let me tell you. He preached the gospel. And evidently, he didn't leave out water baptism in doing it. Why else would the eunuch said? And when they came to water, the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized. And he commanded the chariots to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Or in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48, Peter is sent to Gentiles in Cornelius' house, jam-packed with who knows how many people. He's got some of his fellow Jewish Christians with him in this whole massive courtyard filled with Gentiles, and he preaches the gospel. And we pick up in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. He saw the reaction to the gospel, which is faith here. They believe. They're filled with the Spirit. And then we read in verse 46 and 47. And Peter declared, Can any one of you, my fellow Jews who are Christians, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And in Acts 16, we read, And the jailer called for the lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. It's true for you, and it's true for your household. Believe. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. They laid out the gospel to him 
and to all who were in his house. And the jailer took them in that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized. And remember Lydia down by the river hearing the gospel preached. In chapter 16, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, because she believed, it's what you do. In Acts 18, verse 8, the Lord, excuse me, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And remember one more, chapter 19. We've only heard of John's baptism. Paul preaches Christ very clearly to them. And then we read, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so, let's go back to 1 Peter 3. And he was made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, just our, the relevant point right here is simply this for this morning. Eight people were delivered from God's wrath in the flood. Remember last week, John the Baptist preaching as they come for baptism, who, flee, who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. So here's Peter now. In this text, he sees a comparison between the waters of the flood and the waters of baptism. Verse 21 is the key verse. Baptism, which corresponds to this, Noah's Ark, the eight persons saved in the flood, Baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so if people have been paying attention or just read this text at first glance, it could sound like Peter's preaching baptismal regeneration. Baptism causes you to be saved or to be born again. It brings about the new birth. But as we have seen through the rest of Scripture, that just doesn't stand up. But more importantly, it doesn't work in this very context of 1 Peter chapter 3. As Peter writes, he's very aware that his words might be misinterpreted. And this is why as soon as he penned those words or said them and had them penned, he qualifies the words he just said. In verse 21 he says, Baptism now saves you. Let it just float in the air by itself. That sounds like the water, like the ring in Lord of the Rings, the water has power in and of itself to, to, to save. It has a saving effect whether one has faith or not. And so, he qualifies it. No! No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying is what he says. He says it this way. No, no. So you don't misunderstand. 
I don't mean, it's not as a removal of dirt from the body. What's he talking about? Water removes dirt from the body. I don't mean the water. It's not what I mean, he says. He says, but what do I mean? I mean this, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Back to it. I mean the heart issue. If you just put rings on your fingers, everybody in the room, single people, it doesn't mean you're married. But when you stand with a pastor and witnesses and repeat the vow to that bride and that husband and seal it, the ring means you're married. Peter, he's saying, when I speak of baptism saving, I don't mean the water, the immersing of the body, in other words, the cleansing of the flesh that itself is doing the saving. What I mean is that if, if baptism is evidence of one's internal appeal to God, pledge to God for good conscience in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if that's what that baptism represents in that sense, of course it saves. Are you saved? Yes! Of course! Look at my initial confession through baptism. And I'm going to hold fast day after day. Are you married? Absolutely. It's right here. That's what Paul's saying. By this ring I thee wed. Baptism now saves you. See, that's what Paul's saying. Just one more. In Romans 10, verse 13. Just, just listen, it's really short. Everyone who calls... Okay, here's a call. I got a call. Lord... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's cool. You know, that's gotten a lot of people in American evangelicals and go out on the street and just get people to call on the name of the Lord and tell them they're saved. Is that what Paul means? It's not what he means. Then why would he say everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Is Paul's point to say, Faith, hard issue. Faith alone, hmm, it fails to save. Is that his point? No, he means the real faith. It calls on God. That's what faith does. So Peter's saying, baptism is the God-ordained symbolic drama expression of that call to God. It is an appeal to God saying yes to the gospel. So let me sum it up. Saving faith and baptism are not to be separated. Careful now, careful with the words. They are distinct. Like the way R.C. Sprawl always said it. What's the difference between distinction and separation? Well, if I separate your head from your body, you're dead. If I make a distinction from your head to your body, you're still breathing, that's your head, your arm, it's your legs. In baptism, a person confesses his or her faith in Jesus. But that faith, already present before the waters, that faith in them is distinct from the waters of baptism. It is faith in Jesus that saves, not baptism. Baptism is the 
outward response and expression of faith in the heart toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a way of saying publicly to the local church and to anyone else who will know, and some people do this with their life at stake behind the Islamic curtain. It is a way of saying to God with their body and their life, I trust you. You've taken me into the ark just as you took Noah and his family and saved him. You have taken me into the ark of arks, your eternal son, Jesus Christ. His death for my death. I am so happy to demonstrate this in the drama of the water of death. And so happy you have caused me to see you raised him from the dead. And I will come up out of that water. Knowing, testifying, he saved me. I'm alive. Who would ever want to separate? from this precious ordinance that Jesus gave to us. You do not save yourself. God saves you through the ark. He saves you through the work of Christ on the cross. What must I do? Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And then confess it through being baptized. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank You that You have given us two great ordinances of the church that demonstrate the miracle of salvation. The one done only once. The entrance into the earthly body of Christ through baptism. And to renew over and over and over the demonstration of our death with Christ and His resurrection to Him whom we will one day drink of the cup. We drink of the cup of His blood of the new covenant and the body. Oh, may these become ever more precious to us in the days that we live in to the glory of Jesus. Amen.